Good morning, family. Happy MLK Day and weekend. It's so good to see you, see all of you. Uh, after that song, I just want to go to God in a word of prayer. How about you? Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you so much that you do hold us close. Father, that we, you are our comfort. And Father, it's great to know that we have the Messiah, a Savior, Father, that we can be a part of this amazing kingdom. Father, that you have called all of us to be a part of something so great. And Father, I pray that our hearts are moved. I pray that you really work through me today. Allow your Holy Spirit, Father, to, to, to guide us and to, to say what needs to be said. And Father, I pray that our hearts are open to receive your message today. We love you and we thank you so much for Jesus, the honor, the opportunity. I'm so humbled to be in front of my family and brothers and sisters today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I am Kendall Knight, Kendall Wilson Knight Jr., not Kendall Albert. I always have to look twice when I hear people say Kendall uh, because it's two Kendalls here now. And then when they say coach, we're both coaches. He coaches soccer. I coach football. So that's confusing as well. So just call us KA and KK and you'll be good. Amen. So really, it's exciting. We're starting a series. We've started a series on the kingdom of heaven in Atlanta, in Atlanta, in Atlanta, that's not biblical, but you know, in Atlanta is the theme, uh, meaning that we want to bring kingdom as it is in heaven. Amen? That's what we want to do, and that's what we want to live, and that's what we want to do. And so today, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And Jeff and Jordan did an amazing job teeing this up for us. And they did an incredible job. And Jordan started us off with helping us understand the kingdom and the pearl and the treasure that it is. And it's just amazing to see we've got this fine pearl. It's not a needle in a haystack. It's this pearl that's available to all of us. And then, of course, Jeff did an amazing job helping us with the clash of kingdoms, looking at the Roman Empire, sort of some equivalents to the U.S. Empire, if you would, and really the struggle and how all of us are living in this soup. And we've got to wrestle every day to bring kingdom to people's lives. And that's what Jordan shared in his message, that everything we do, we have the opportunity to bring kingdom. Amen? And so, you know, I was given this task of preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Now, of course, I've been a Christian for nearly 30 years, and you would think it would be easy to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. But to some degree, it's probably one of the hardest things to do. And I say that is because not, it's not about doing, it's about becoming. Amen. It's about spiritual formation, spiritual transformation. This new sheriff in town, Jesus, has flipped the world upside down. And even in my own studies, it's one of those deals where, wow, is my heart continually to be flipped by Jesus? Now, in my studies, I've kind of looked at so many scholars. I listened to so many podcasts. I listened to so many videos, read so many different things, hours of just trying to digest the message that Jesus was communicating to us. You know, I listened to uh, the gentleman from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey. Is that his name, uh, Chase? I listened to uh, Spurgeon. Okay, I listened to Marty Solomon. I listened to one of our great scholars, Michael Burns. I talked to Jeff Hickman. I talked to uh, Jordan Massey. I just tried to get so much insight, Tom Brown and many others, to try to get insight into what Jesus was saying. Now, many believe that the Sermon on the Mount started in Matthew chapter five, 
When you talk to others, the context of the Sermon on the Mount is really started in the latter half of Matthew chapter 4, where you really take a look at what the things that Jesus was doing. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. And then, you know, you talk to Michael Burns, you know, for some of you don't know Michael Burns, he's a brother that comes uh, and he, he services us through Atlanta School of Missions. He's a brilliant teacher, consults with us on so many different levels, and we're grateful to have him. And my, Michael says, hey, the Sermon on the Mount is chiatic. I'm like, what? Chi who? Oh, come on, Mike. Chiatic? And of course, I'm too prideful. I'm studying the Sermon on the Mount. I'm too prideful to ask him what that is, right? And so finally, he says, it's a pattern. I said, oh. I talked to some of my Bible scholar guys. I said, great, I'll leave it right there. But it is a pattern. There's an ascension to the Sermon on the Mount. And you cannot do, you cannot literally move forward with one. You got to get to the one before you get to the others. You got to understand it's an ascension. There's a pattern. There's a pattern of growth that Jesus is trying to help us with. But in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23, it says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and brought, him, brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from the Galilee, the capitalists, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so you see there's a new sheriff in town, this kingdom, this Roman empire, that's now looking at this king, this guy, who is this Jesus? And what is he doing? He is empowering the downtrodden. He's encouraging those whose lives are on the down and out. He's working with Gentiles, he's working with Jews, he's working with his disciples. All of them are there to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. It's really an amazing passage as it starts out. Really, what we're gonna see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does some amazing things. He's gonna teach us on the Beatitudes. He's gonna teach us on salt and light. He's gonna teach us on the, the, uh, the Torah. He's gonna teach us about anger. Okay, my computer is frozen. Come on, I'm trying to go with you here. Here we go. Here we go. He's going to teach us about lust. He's going to teach us about divorce, vows, revenge, loving enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, money, worry, judging others, asking, seeking, knocking, way to heaven, fruits in people's lives, building on solid foundation. All of those things are the things we're going to learn in the next five and a half months. Amen? So when we look at Jesus and we look at his life, he helps us to understand the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, there's two terms, two words that are linked to the Beatitudes. A Latin word, beatus, it means happy or flourishing. Or the Greek word, makarios, happy, flourishing, thriving, shalom, completeness, soundness, and welfare. That's what the Beatitudes mean. That's what the Beatitudes, my computer is frozen here, so I have to look back, I'm sorry. So that's what the Beatitudes means. That's what we're gonna learn. The first one he helps us with is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting about this, 
The Life Application Bible does a great job with helping us understand the process of the Beatitudes. It talks about an Old Testament anticipation. It talks about the clashing worldly values. It talks about God's reward and it helps us to develop the attitude to be more and more like Jesus. When you think of poor in spirit, why are we all here? We're all here because we're broken. We're all here because at some point in our lives, we were literally down and out. And so when you look at the poor in spirit, I want to go back. Kind of my slides. Hang on a second, guys. Hang in there with me. Oh, there we go. Okay. Poor in spirit. The Greek word, tachos. The P is not pronounced. One who is bent or folded, metaphorically, one who is utterly destitute, bankrupt. Think about that a second. Spiritually bankrupt. Now, that's not very encouraging when you think about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the one right here where we really have to fight every day to remain humble enough to experience the kingdom. Can we remain humble and broken and low and out so that God can not only influence us, but we can influence others for his glory? This is the thing that was the challenge. This is what was difficult and continues to be difficult. Well, I knew when I became a Christian, it was clear to me why I became a Christian. I messed up every relationship I was in with every female, every opposite sex, everything. I messed it up. It was clear to me. Broken. But you know how it is. You get older in faith and you get to know more. You understand the Bible more. You know, you know what to do on the outside, but what does my heart look like? Is my heart broken? Am I going to God? Am I relying on him in all things? Am I completely humble in all I do? See, the thing about being poor in spirit and what makes the beatitude so confusing is that Jesus says, blessed, makarios, happy. It's not really happy. It's sort of like our brother Marty Solomon calls it When we're broken, we, blessed means we experience God's favor. That God wants to bless us when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That when I'm down, God can bring kingdom to my life. There's an amazing posture we need to have. It means that we let go of all of our worldviews. I appreciate what Jeff shared last week. It was incredible. He talked about letting go of our worldviews and being influenced. We're not, it's not about our political association. It's about our association with Jesus. So that kingdom, kingdom can become a part of our lives. Imitate.
imitating Jesus and helping those that are less, that are poor in spirit, helping those who are down and out, being compassionate. Now, look, we did, we're doing a strength-based training. I'm kind of getting the tail end of it. The staff is doing it. And what's really interesting, and we're all doing it, and you all, some of you will experience it at a different leadership level at some point. Lynn does a great job with this. And I look at one of my five strengths. Empathy is not one of them. It was not there. It's believer, it's coach, it's some other word I can't pronounce. You know, it's just, it's sort of those things, right? And so I'm not naturally empathetic. One of my players, Addison, is here. Good to see you, the Nichols family. My colleague, Carrie and Kathy are here. We're happy to have them. Addison knows that I'm not always the most compassionate. When we coached him in high school, he plays for Tennessee now, so Vol fans, amen, great, 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 any volunteer fans, Georgia won it, yeah, you know, amen, I'm a volunteer. <laughs> Didn't get no hoot hoot, sorry Addison, you know, I'm wrong part of town here. But, but the part of it, what I'm saying is, is that when we get put in positions in life where there's a conflict, you know, when I'm competing as a, co- am I poor in spirit? When that colleague is challenging you or when you're finding a situation that doesn't meet your needs or you're, you're in conflict, are we poor in spirit? You know, we witnessed something really tragic a couple weeks ago. We saw this young man get carted off the field, Damar Hamlin. It's a real tragic situation. A cardiac arrest. Died on the field, literally, for a period of time. Flatlined. Now, as a coach, I was, I was like, God, when are you going to get up? Demar, when are you going to get up? You know, I've seen ambulances on the field. I've seen situations. I'm like, Demar, get up. You know, okay, broken leg. You know, I know that's nothing to sneeze over, but, you know, arm, this. When are you going to get up? Get up, Demar. And then they kept cutting out and cutting out and cutting out. I said, Diane, do you see this? You see what's going on here. And it looks like these are strapped, physical, the best in the world. And at the worst time of their lives, the entire world was broken. Went to God, pleaded with God, the entire world. And what's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount, there's some similarities. The Decapolis, they weren't Christians, they were there listening. The Jews, his disciples, there's a combination of different people there. I'm sure there's some Muslims there, there may be some Jews there, there may be some Christians there, but at the end of the day, humanity was broken. Humanity was busted up, man. It was pretty bad. And the thing we gotta understand about that is that those guys went to God. They went to the Father in heaven. They didn't care where they were, they got down on their knees. God, please be with this situation. And all throughout, Dan Ovalosky, Rex Ryan, Ryan, all these guys praying, pop-up prayers. And the next thing you know, the young man is out of the hospital. Did we win the game, he says. (laughs) He wakes up, he says, did we win? And Rex Ryan, I don't know if you guys know Rex, big defense coordinator, just, just, you know, Rex is just, just awesome you know he's a he's as a coach you just love to hear him bawling on tv because he was broken and he was broken because did we win the game 
And I think it's important for us, Jesus wants us to win the game. He wants to bring kingdom to our lives. He wants to support us. He wants us to be there. His process is different than anyone in the world. He's flipped it upside down, but he's there for us, and he wants us to be victorious in God's glory, sitting in his arms one day. That's what Jesus wants for all of us. That's what he wants. But before we can do that, step one is we got to get broken. We got to dismiss our worldviews, dismiss the things we are, lose ourselves in Christ, follow up and just lift ourselves up in his arms. That's been the rest of the matches I've been studying this. This is not just a presentation. This is a personal conviction. Isaiah 57, 15 is sort of the Old Testament. I won't get to that, but it's the Old Testament anticipation. And it talks about when there's contrition in heart, God will lift us up. Here in James chapter 4, verse 7, it talks about how we need to mourn and how God raises up the humble. And we're going to look at this passage a little bit later. But that is the key for us as men and women of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. The Greek for blessed are those who mourn, for mourning is pentheo. Mourn or lament, to grieve. There are multiple Greek words with additional meanings and definitions. It means, comfort means to console, to unburden, relief, and encouragement. That's what it means to be comforted in the Beatitudes. When you look at that, bless those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. You know, I remember several years ago, some brothers and I, we, you know, we kind of went to the Golden Corral, okay? <laughs> Had some Golden Corral. The feast for those who are not healthy, right? Amen. <laughs> Good gracious. We went and had some Golden Corral, man. I got to admit, I like some Golden Corral. I mean, you know, the, the peach cobbler is pretty good. We're on a fast. Oh, hold on. We're on a fast as a church. Wait a minute. The vegetables and the chicken is awesome. Amen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But anyway on a tangent when it comes to food. I don't know why. <laughs> I have a struggling relationship with food too, so I need to, I need to pray about this. <laughs> All right, move on. Okay. But something came up that was interesting. So we're all sitting around and some brothers, we had this little New York reunion. We're sitting around and we're talking and chit-chatting. What's amazing about this is that all of a sudden we started talking about our lives. And one brother said, you know, I really, I really struggle with the things I did in my past. It really bothers me. Now, this is a brother who's been around for 30 years. He says, you know, I wonder what those people are doing, those that I took advantage of. Amen. And then I'm like, bro, you know, I wonder about all those women that I was sexually immoral with, what they're doing. And I remember when I first became a Christian, one of the things I did is I went back to two ex-girlfriends right away and said, look, I'm really sorry. I apologize for how I didn't lead you. I apologize for how I didn't love you. And of course, it was like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. They looked at me like I had two, like my head was turning around backwards. Like, what just happened to you? And I was just so broken early on 
And still, and you know, you think about your sin, and you think about what you've lost, and you think about how challenging it is, and you think about the devastation, and yet through all that, when we're poor in spirit and we mourn, God wants to console us and comfort us. He wants, he's got our back. He loves us. So in Psalm 51, it talks about that, that we're flawed and imperfect people, and God loves us. And not only do we need to look at ourselves individually, but we need to look at ourselves collectively as a church. What have we done? Have we mourned over that? Have we, have, have we really been broken by some of the, the mistakes we've made as a fellowship? Do we mourn over that? Is, is that front and center as a congregation? We're broken, imperfect people. And yet God wants to encourage us and comforts us and give us relief. Acts chapter three, repent and turn to God so that what? Times of refreshing will come. That's what the Bible says. God through our sin wants to refresh us and keep us encouraged. That's just hard to believe. And see, that's why it's not about happy. So what's the kingdom clash? Happiness, that's the kingdom clash. In the poor in spirit, what's the kingdom clash? Power, pride, that's the kingdom clash, right? And so we're wrestling with always wanting to be happy and yet not self-reflect on how much damage we've done and how much we've lost because of that damage and God wants to work through that damage to make us better people. I mean, I think that's, that's what the Beatitudes is all about. And then this Roman Empire, this is, man, their heads are turned around backwards. This is a new teaching. This is something they've never heard of before because Jesus is trying to help them understand Makarios thriving and flourishing. It's like in our marriages when we hurt our wives or we hurt our husbands or we hurt our children. You know, are we quick to apologize and quick to say I'm sorry, but not just say I'm sorry, but be sorry. Not say I'm sorry, but be sorry. You know why? Because we're all sorry in Jesus' eyes. We're all sorry. And so it's so important to be the first to want to understand the difference of mourning and how important comforting is. Let's look at Isaiah 61. I want to read this one as an Old Testament anticipation. Let's look at Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. All who mourn. All who mourn. What's God's response to this? Comfort. Let's look at the New Testament Attitude we need to adapt. James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your heart to laughter. Mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Lamenting brokenness. It's hard to do. When you're not naturally empathetic like me, hard to do. Hard to do. But if we want to be lifted up, 
and we want to be different people of God, and we want to be comforted by God, the more broken, the more we mourn, the more God's presence is there. The more kingdom is there. The more it's on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen? God wants to comfort us. That's his desire to lift us up. But it's so important for us to have the heart to want to be lifted up. Finally, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek. It's interesting on this one. The King James Version has the word meek in the Bible between 31 and 37 times. All other translations have it as gentle and humble. I don't know why, but it's very similar to the word servant, where in most translations it has the word servant, but really the true term, Greek term for it is slave. And so meekness, when you look at it as pros, pros, I'm sorry if I'm not a Greek scholar, but gentle, the positive moral quality of dealing with people in a kind manner, with humility, consideration, strength under control, shows compassion and mercy. This quality in the world is probably one of the most difficult qualities, and I won't stigmatize, but I know for men's, most men, that's hard. When somebody kind of punks you, right? That's the street term, yo, this guy punked me, man. You know what I mean? Kind of got after him. That's the real street term, right? I mean, I'm fighting. That's the first thing I want to fight. When someone kind of deals with me in a real unrighteous way, I want to fight. I want to get after it. I, want to, I don't want to be gentle. I don't want to be compassionate. I don't want to be positive. That's soft, man. It's gentle, positive, compassionate, under control. Well, that's good to do. But the other stuff, that's not natural. Being meek, power under control is not natural. It's a very difficult thing to do. You know, somebody kind of, you know, when you get pushed. And, but what is Jesus saying to these folks? The Roman Empire was all about power and strength and, and, and just showing off. And, and really just, it was about their kingdom and their money and their wealth and, and dismissing the downtrodden and it wasn't about meekness and power and the control and humility and love and mercy for you'll fill the whole earth if you show a level of meekness. That's what Jesus is saying. He's kind of flipping it upside down. And that's really, really powerful. You know, the Old Testament is Psalm 37, 5 through 11. Let's turn there. Psalm 37, verses 5 through 11. Let's look at this. This is sort of the Old Testament anticipation to the Sermon on the Mount and to this beatitude. Let's look at this. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness, your righteous word shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land, amen? A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they'll be not, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace, shalom, and prosperity. Shalom, peace. I no longer have to fight for anything. God, you've got it, amen. Peace, 
peace, not financial prosperity, spiritual prosperity. This is not prosperity doctrine, this is Jesus' doctrine. You know, when I think of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, what does Jesus tell them? He says this, listen to what he says here. This is, the, this is the New Testament attitude. He says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. I am meek and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Relief, relief, relief. And that's what we all want in our lives. You know, when I think of this weekend, we think about Martin Luther King Jr. A man who's given up his life to live a counterculture life, to live a life that would turn the world upside down. One of the great orators that I've ever heard. But not only was he a great orator, he was very spiritual. He was a man that had biblical theology that was leading his movement. And this is not about, you know, politics. I'm not going there. I just talked about that. I'm talking about a man that had the power to move people in a direction that was unlike Jesus. And he chose to move them in a Christ-like direction. So I've got a clip from Life Blueprint back in 1950-something or 60-something, 55 years ago, 56 years ago, when he was at a high school and he gave them four specific things that he wanted them to do and to think about. And this is the fourth one. And of course, there's only a two-minute clip. So if you would, please listen and look at how he instructs these people and look at the power under control, the meekness, and how God really used them in this moment. Finally, in your life's blueprint must be a commitment to the eternal principles of beauty, love, and justice. Don't allow anybody to pull you so low as to make you hate them. Don't allow anybody to cause you to lose your self-respect to the point that you do not struggle for justice. However young you are, you have a responsibility to seek to make your nation a better nation in which to live. You have a responsibility to seek to make life better for everybody. And so you must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice. Now in this struggle for freedom and justice, there are many constructive things that we all can do and that we all must do. And we must not give ourselves to those things which will not solve our problems. You've heard the word nonviolent and you've heard the word violent. I happen to believe in nonviolence. We've struggled with this method with young people and adults alike all over the South and we have won some significant victories and we've got to struggle with it all over the North because the problems are as serious in the North as they are in the South. 
But I believe as we struggle with these problems, we've got to struggle with them with a method that can be militant, but at the same time does not destroy life or property. And so our slogan must not be burn, baby, burn. It must be build, baby, build. A man under control. He wasn't Jesus. We're not lifting him above the Savior. He wasn't Jesus. But I know there was a rage in his heart to want to do something different. And he imitated the Christ, kept himself self-controlled, meek to inherit the earth, to do what God does, to bring kingdom to people's lives on earth as it in heaven. I want to challenge us, Makarios, God's favor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. And blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his counterculture mindset. He flipped things upside down. He flipped our hearts upside down. God, I pray that we'll continue to focus on spiritual formation, not doing but becoming more and more like your son. Help us to surrender, Father, to him. Help us to remain poor in spirit so that we can experience kingdom in our life. Help us, God, to mourn when we break, when we blow it, to know that we'll be comforted. And God, help us to be meek, men and women that are gentle and compassionate, power under control. Father, men and women that imitate and look like you as we live in Atlanta, bring your kingdom as it is in heaven. Thank you for Jesus' broken body, the bread that represents his broken body and the blood that was shed. We really appreciate all of that. We really do. Thank you for calling us to continue to grow, to be like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.